welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Valentine. Wishing everyone well this holiday season. Happy November. Today's podcast is a shorter one, part two of Vince's talk from the Buddhist Recovery Summit. Um, the This podcast will be taking place only twice a month now. Uh, I just have not had the bandwidth lately to do it every single week. So um, please keep listening. We will be releasing one every other week. Uh, my only other announcement this week is that next month, Spring Washam will be on our next live recording of the Buddhist Recovery Academy, where she will be speaking about the controversial topic uh, of the use of ayahuasca in recovery. Uh, that free Dharma talk will be taking place online on December 1st at 1 p.m. Pacific time. And you can find the Zoom link at BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash academy. So I hope to see you there. Okay, and now for Vince's talk. Enjoy. Well, uh, well the, the teaching says that the, the mind is an entity on its own. It goes off prowling around looking for things to be delighted in. It's nothing to do with me. Uh, well, um, and the beauty of it, when I sit and watch the mind, I can see it go prowling. It will not stay still. You know, samadhi or concentration, I don't like the word concentration. Um, you know, sitting still. Uh, was it Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, mathematician in the 17th century, said, all of humankind's misery comes from man's inability to sit silently alone in a room on his own. He wasn't a Buddhist, but he could see that. So I found it wonderful when, you know, when I first started meditating. That after a period of time, suddenly I could recognise well, these thoughts are arising of their own making. They're nothing to do with me. They'll just come, and, the, and my mind wants to do things. It wants to go out prowling, to be delighted in things, to worry about things, to fantasise about things. But I can sit and watch that and go, ah, oh, that's a fantasy. Or that's fear, or that's anxiety. But a lot of these feelings are quite visceral. They appear in the body at the same time. But in terms of Buddhist mind, or what we might term as Buddhist wisdom, in, in a sense, is definitely the heart mind. So there's a connection. Um, during my divorce process in 2014, a divorce I wasn't in agreement, my, you know, I allowed it to go ahead, I wasn't in agreement with it, it wasn't what I wanted, but I, I, I set a commitment, a commitment to enter that process with an open mind, an open heart and open hands. But even having set that commitment, you know, there would be times when I had a very visceral sense of anger arise. I'm right, you're wrong, and you need to know that. But immediately on seeing that, I said, no, it's just anger. That, that's like that's if I follow that through, if I feed that, if I ride with it, it takes me to the end of the line where I used to go. And then I just go, how did I find myself back here again? I don't want to go there. I know where that's going to take me. The same as I know where one drink would take me to the end of the line. Arjan Amaro, uh, 
the abbot of the Amirati Monastery in, in the UK, he gave a 10-day uh, meditation retreat on penitent origination and the cycles of addiction. And he described this process of um, independent origination when, you know, that trigger arises, that trigger comes into view um, or, or enters our senses. And it's a train. We can decide whether to get on the train or not to get on the train. So it, it presents itself and, you know, if we get on the train, you know, don't go to the end of the line. Get off at the next station. <laughs> yeah. So does that, does that make any sense? So I, I, I don't want to delay Kevin's um, uh, input to this afternoon. So I'll, I'll move quickly on to... So we've looked at... We've looked potentially at what the Buddha describes as our addictions. And he effectively said, everything's an addiction. We're, we are addicted to pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant tastes, pleasant tactile sensations, pleasant smells, pleasant thoughts. Um, and sometimes we're addicted to the opposite because it, it feeds something for us. Uh, in a clinical sense, um, addiction manifests itself as something that is unmanageable. And something over, something of which we're powerless. We have powerlessness, or it's powerless to us. Um, and the Buddha mirrors that, particularly in the first noble truth, where you know he says, "Dukkha, you know, dukkha is birth. Dukkha is getting old. Dukkha is getting sick. Dukkha is dying. Dukkha is pain, sorrow, lamentation, grief, and despair." Dukkha is being stuck with the things we don't like. Being stuck with all the all the unpleasant sights, and unpleasant sounds, unpleasant tastes, unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant people, unpleasant experiences, and then being separated from all the things we do love. He says, Dukkha is getting what you don't want. Dukkha is not getting what you do want, and that's just life. We're powerless over that. That's how life is going to present it. It's not personal. I keep going back to my alcoholism. It's not personal. It's a, it's the summation. It's a, the coming together of causes and conditions at a certain time. And at this, now, at this time, 23 years later, I'm currently not an alcoholic. And it's my intention. Another one of the Buddha's uh, tools for recovery, setting intentions, that I'll never go back in, into that realm again. I want to spend the rest of my life as much as possible in the human realm. Yeah, I put you know, visit to the hell, heaven realm sometimes. I visit to the hell realm sometimes. But really, I want to spend all my time in the the human realm. So I quoted earlier from um, uh, I can't pronounce it. I think it's Avial Goodman, MD, where she says that um, an informal definition of addiction might be. A process whereby a behaviour that can function both to produce pleasure and, to, and provide an escape from internal discomfort is employed in a pattern characterised by recurrent failure to control the behaviour, i.e. powerlessness, and a continuation of that behaviour despite significant negative consequences, i.e. unmanageability. Now, is this mirrored in, in the Buddhist teachings? And, and I believe it's mirrored the uh, powerlessness of um, the situation excuse me, is mirrored perfectly and described by that first noble truth um, and a, a truth that we have to come to understand and in many senses like our addictions we have to surrender to we can't argue with the first noble truth so we have to not only understand uh, how 
suffering presents itself, but also surrender to it. So from a modernist perspective, you know, life is stressful, it's uncomfortable, it's uncertain, insecure, disappointing, painful. It's complicated, it's boring, it's impersonal, it's difficult, it's distressing, challenging, and it's very unfair. But it's not personal. But so this sense of powerlessness might be attributed to the first noble truth, but is unmanageability mentioned in the suttas. And the example I would like to draw on is the Buddha's advice to a young man named Sigalata. I think it's on page two. And for me, this, this mirrors the chaotic nature and the unmanageability nature, unmanageable nature of our cravings. Um, is it possible for someone to read? Just the first paragraph. Yes, please, yeah. Six drains on wealth. What six drains on wealth do they avoid? Habitually engaging in the following thing is a drain on wealth. Drinking alcohol roaming the streets at night, frequenting festivals, gambling, bad friends, laziness. Would someone read the second paragraph if there's a mic near you? I passed it back. <laughs> um, six drawbacks of drinking. These are six drawbacks of habitually drinking alcohol. Immediate loss of wealth, promotion of quarrels, susceptibility to illness, disrepute, indecent exposure, and weakened wisdom in the sixth thing. These are the six drawbacks of habitually drinking alcohol. Six drawbacks of roaming the streets at night. There are these six drawbacks of roaming the streets at night. Yourself, your partners, and your children, and your property are all left unguarded. You're suspected of bad deeds, untrue rumors spread about you. You're at the forefront of many things that entail suffering. These are the six drawbacks of roaming the streets at night. Six drawbacks of festivals. There are these six drawbacks of frequenting festivals. You're always thinking, where's the dancing? Where's the singing? Where's the music? Where are the stories? Where's the applause? Where are the kettle drums? These are the six drawbacks of frequenting festivals. Uh, the six drawbacks of gambling. The, there are these six drawbacks of habitually gambling. Victory breeds enmity. The loser mourns their money. There is immediate loss of wealth a gambler's word carries no weight in public assembly. Friends and colleagues treat them with contempt. And no one wants to marry a gambler, for they think, this individual is a gambler. They're not able to support a partner. These are the six drawbacks of habitually gambling.
the six drawbacks of bad friends. <laughs> there are these six drawbacks of bad friends. You become friends and companions with those who are scoundrels, drunkards, addicts, frauds, swindlers, and thugs. These are the six drawbacks of bad friends. Six drawbacks of laziness. There are these six drawbacks of habitual laziness. You don't get your work done because you think it's too cold, it's too hot, it's too late, it's too early, I'm too hungry, I'm too full. By dwelling on so many excuses for not working, you don't make any more money, and the money you already have runs out. These are the six drawbacks of habitual laziness. Having said that, the Buddha then puts the whole lot into prose. Is anyone willing to read page three for me, the whole, just the whole page? If someone's near a microphone. Thank you for that. Yeah. Then the teacher went on to say, some are just drinking buddies. Some call you their dear, dear friend. But a true friend is one who stands by you in need. Sleeping late, adultery, making enemies, harmfulness, bad friends, uh, avarice. These six grounds ruin a person. With bad friends, bad companions, bad behavior, and alms resort, a man falls to ruin in both this world and in the next. Dice, women, drink, song and dance, sleeping by day and roaming at night, bad friends, and Avarice. Avarice. These are six grounds. These six grounds ruin a person. They play dice and drink liquor and consort with women uh, loved by others, associating with the worse, not the better. They diminish like a waning moon. Is, was that right? Okay. A drunkard, broke, a destitute, thirsty, drinking in a bar, drowning in debt, we will quickly lose their will quick, quickly lose their way when you're in the habit of sleeping late seeing night as time to rise and always getting drunk you can keep up the household life you can't keep up the household life too cold too hot too late they say when the young neglect their work like this riches pass them by but the one who considers hot and cold as nothing more than blades of grass, he does not mainly he does his mainly duty, and happiness never fails. Thank you very much for that. So nothing's changed, is it? <laughs> Two thousand six hundred years, and nothing's changed, apart from our, you know, our distractions. So it's not so much festivals, but it's what's on YouTube, what's on Netflix. Where's the drumming? Where's the singing? Where's the dancing? Where's the applause? Absolutely fascinating. So, for for me, that demonstrates uh, a bit contrived, but it demonstrates you know the unmanageability of our addictions, how we how we can continuously distract ourselves. It's, this is a, a wonderful talk that the Buddha gives to this young man, Sigalata, I think that's how you pronounce his name, and um, and he goes beyond this advice. He goes on to advise Sigalata um, uh, how to. Um, approaches relationships and um, 
I won't go into the full details, but um, you know, he's very much a socialist, very much a social activist. Um, when it comes to um, workplace relationships, the Buddha says, you know, you treat your workers with respect. You pay them a decent wage. You give them suitable time. You give them suitable jobs for their abilities. You give them time off. You look after you look after their health, and you give them bonuses. This is two thousand six hundred years ago. I find it quite stunning. I'm not sure whether he's licensed or not, but he also gives financial advice. And he says 50% of your income should be spent on business, 25% should be spent on household um, expenses, and 25% should be put away for a rainy day. So very solid advice. In terms of... Um, the third and fourth noble truths, which is the recovery uh, and the path of recovery of um, from our intoxicating inclinations. The third noble truth is this truth of Naroda. I'm sure Kevin might touch on all four noble truths uh, shortly. But the truth of Naroda, the truth of cessation. Now this monks is the noble truth of cessation of dukkha. It is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same tanha, that same craving, and giving up and relinquishing of it, freedom from it, and non-reliance upon it. And then the Buddha describes this path, a potential path, it's an eightfold path. This, now this monk is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. It is the noble eightfold path, that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort right mindfulness and right concentration. But from my perspective and my practice, it's, that is a very important path, but it's not the only path that the Buddha suggests. And he, he offers various ways to enter recovery, whether it's via the path of the, the Satipatthana Sutta, this talk on um, the the establishment of mindfulness, the foundations of mindfulness, whether it's these lovely talks, um, the talk, you know, talk to the, the Kalamars, this, uh, this group of villagers who weren't sure who to believe, and he gives them a lovely talk about, you know, don't go on oral tradition, don't, don't go on written tradition, don't just go on because this, the teacher is personable. You know, does the teaching lead to your welfare and benefit or not? If it leads to your welfare and benefit, then it's a good teaching. If it doesn't, then leave it, leave it alone. And then he moves on. That's why Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So in certain circumstances, as someone asked earlier, you know, is it good to hold on to the, uh, the identity of being an addict? Well, it, it all depends. If I hold on to that identity uh, from a place of um, it's beneficial, to my welfare at this moment in time, then that's, it's good to hold on to that identity. But if I'm holding on to that identity because it gives me permission to, to be unskillful and un unwholesome, then it's not a good thing to hold on to. So in every instance, it's, you know, is this for my welfare and benefit? And depending upon circumstance, it may or may not be. So it's an excellent teaching. And then the Buddha goes on um, as, as a path to... Uh, to happiness, to, you know, he, he embraces the um, four faces of love, the, the these boundless um, Brahma Viharas, and he says, you know, just 
pervade your whole life, every area of your life, with, with um, these four faces of love, with kindness, with compassion, with joy, and with balance, with equanimity. And even then he even offers us guarantees. He didn't, offer, didn't often offer guarantees, but he said, oh, well, I guarantee you, he said, if you do this on your death, on the breakup of your body, if there are future lifetimes, if, then you haven't got a problem. You're in. You're going to be reborn in happy realms. He said, and if, if when you die and the breakup of your body, there aren't future lifetimes, then you've got nothing to worry about either, because you would have had your rewards in this lifetime. So it's wonderful. There aren't many, you know, spiritual traditions that offer you that type of guarantee. <laughs> so I'm in on that one. So there's not, there's not just one path. You know, they're very, you can come into this, into Buddhism from many different angles and what works for you at this moment in time. Gab, as I mentioned Gabor Mata this morning, even Gabor Mata says, you know, nothing works for everything. One size does not fit all. So this first noble truth, life is difficult, life is disappointing, life is stressful, life is traumatic, life is uncomfortable, life is unsatisfying, life is impermanent, life is impersonal, life is uncertain, life is unsafe. Craving for things to be different is based on ignorance, manifesting as confusion regarding our own and other people's expectations, expectations and how and who we are and how and the world should be. So part of recovery is that the first noble truth is to be understood and the second, second noble truth, the all-pervading tanha, should be abandoned. But perhaps just like the re recent redefinitions of what addictions actually are, um, maybe we need to be more descriptive about the first noble truth. Maybe it needs to be redefined. We live in a different age now and there is more confusion, there is more stress, there is more disappointment, there is more trauma. There are more expectations, and there are more ways for us to disconnect. So the wiser response, our wise response to that where we find ourselves today, might be you know, adopting an ethical way of life, a set of guidelines that keeps us safe. You know, we mentioned yesterday about uh, community rights and individual rights, and how these five suggestions of the Buddha, these five precepts, keep us safe. You know, I have a right. Um, to, be, to not to be physically harmed. I have a right for my property to be respected. I have a right for my sexual boundaries to be respected. I have a right not to be lied to, to be spoken to kindly, not to be gossiped or slandered about. And I have a right to keep a, cl a clear mind, a clear head. So these, these five precepts, these five suggestions that the Buddha offers us is on their own, they remove so much suffering from our lives. When I go back 23 years, just adopting the fifth precept as a lifestyle choice, as, as an aspiration, removed 80% of the suffering of my, in my life and the lives of people around me. Just gone. 80% wiped out. Excuse me. And in trying to live in accordance, in harmony with all five precepts, you know, hopefully I can move through what's left of my life without leaving a, a wake, without leaving a trail of destruction behind me. I've caused enough suffering. There's a rather lovely summary of a sutta on the back page of the references I gave you. 
and and it's it's a commentary on a particular suitor, and uh, the suitor itself is is very nice, but it, it, it's quite wordy. But in essence, it says that you know when you're when you're struggling with difficult thoughts, then you give one you give your attention to something else. So when the cravings come up or when triggers are triggers are triggered, then you give your attention to something else. You might reflect on the danger of giving in to those thoughts, of not getting off the train at the next station. You know, don't go to the end of the line. The Buddha suggests just not giving any attention to those discursive, uncomfortable thoughts. And he says, if you can't do that, then remove yourself from the source of those thoughts. Get out of the way. And then the fifth suggestion, rather lovely, if all else fails, bite your tongue. Isn't that nice? Bite your tongue. Part of my own practice, as I explained last night, was making that vow at my kitchen table, never to drink again and not to switch addictions. And, it, and that was termed by this monastery in Thailand as a satcha, as a commitment to truth. Well, the very first satcha, of course, when, was when the Buddha committed to truth. And his commitment to sit under the Bodhi tree and, until he awakened is called a satcha kirya. We can all make satchas, we can all make commitments that we want to live a certain way with certain outcomes. The abbot, the middle abbot at Wat Tamkrabok, gave me a personal satcher to consider. He dispensed these things uh, when you went to see him. And he said, no one can do it for you, you must do it for yourself. And I had to practice that for two years between the hours of eight in the morning and midday. And that's true, no one can do it for me, I must do it for myself. But we do better and we even thrive when we do things in community. And that's why community is so important. So we, we might surrender to the, the first noble truth, to the truth, and, tr and truth in this sense is a satcha, is known as satcha, and the wider truths of reality. The truth of how things actually are, including our addictions. The truth of anicca, that life is impersonal, life is impermanent, life is not actually all about me. So this real powerlessness and real liberation uh, arises. Powerlessness as an aspect of evolutionary development and of evolutionary psychology. And then there's a sunyata of recovery in the sense of my life is now empty of conflict, empty of craving, empty of guilt, empty of shame. As I've already said, the Buddha was very practical and pragmatic with his advice. The advice he offers us to move away from suffering, to move towards the end of suffering. And I, I, was, I was going to quote the Buddha's last words or give you a, an alternative quote on the Buddha's last words, but I think I'll save that until Kevin's finished. So thank you very much for listening to me. and. and And it would be nice. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll close out today's episode with a dedication of merit from the fifth precept Sangha meeting format. 
which was developed by Vince Cullen. We dedicate the merits of this practice to all suffering addicts. May everyone be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May everyone enjoy happiness and the causes of happiness. Keep sitting and keep smiling.